Uh, grab your Bibles, if you would, and jump into Matthew chapter 13. We are continuing our series called Urgent. And last week, we started this series, and we're examining the urgent nature of the gospel, both in our response to the gospel, if we've never responded, and then in our proclamation of the gospel as those who've been sent by Jesus to share the essential message of the gospel with the world around us. And last week, we started the series by looking at the second coming of Christ, the last days. And what we saw is, is that Jesus is coming again. And I believe, of course, it's obvious that we are one day closer to that than we were yesterday. But I believe that truly believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. We need to be prepared. Therefore, the second coming of Christ should put an urgency in our hearts to anticipate that day and to do the things that he's called us to do as followers until he returns. But this morning, I want to wrestle with this. When Jesus comes back, when he returns, what is going to happen to those who are not his? What's going to happen to those who don't know Christ? Where will they spend eternity? So this morning, I want to talk about the reality of hell. The reality of hell. Aren't you glad you got up this morning and came to church? And um, we're going to talk about this because I believe, truly believe, this is one of the most underpreached doctrines um, that we have and we hold as followers of Jesus. Uh, we need to hear more about the reality of hell. And this morning, we're going to talk about it. My daughter, though, was kind of freaking out. She was like, she always asked me, hey, dad, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, well, I'm going to preach on hell. And she just kind of got real quiet. And she's like, why? And uh, I was like, because it's an important subject. And, uh, and she said, well, I, I, did, I wouldn't think you would want to scare people into giving their life to Jesus. So apparently, she had heaven's gates and hell's flames tattooed in her mind, thinking that we were going to jack the heat up in here and make you uncomfortable and say things like, if you think this is hot, um, right? We're, we're not going to do that. That's because the elders wouldn't let me. But, um, but I told her this. This was my answer, and this is the answer I'll give you. Why would I preach this? I don't want to scare people into heaven or scare them out of hell. So why would I preach this? Because there needs to be a holy fear that we have of this place called hell. If we're not followers of Jesus, there should be a, a fear in our hearts because of its reality. But more than responding to the gospel of Jesus because we're motivated by the fear of hell, rather, and this is kind of, I did said it in more simple terms, but I'll say it to you like this, but rather, this one told my daughter, I don't want us to be motivated by fear. I would rather sobered by fear but in light of hell, marveling at the gospel and the grace of Jesus, that though we deserve hell, God has given us a way out. And so my prayer today is that you walk away sobered with the reality so that you would live with urgency and that you would marvel at the glory and the grace of a God who would love us enough to offer an invitation and a way of escape from this terrible place. So here's what we're going to do. Matthew 13 is where we're going to be. I want us to look at this because it's important. What we believe about hell shapes the way that we live and see the world and the urgency with which we live. So Matthew 13, we're going to look at a very short passage here and probably a dozen other verses in other places, but this will be where we camp out this morning. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 47, chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but, the, but threw away the bad. Verse 49, so will be at the end of the age. 
the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is obviously talking about the second coming here. He's talking about the same thing that he was talking about last week in the passage in Matthew 24. And he's describing what will happen to people on that day when he returns who do not have a relationship with him. And he explicitly talks about that their destination is a place called hell. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of walk through this verse, some other verses, and I want to answer three fundamental questions that I think we all need to answer. Questions that our culture is asking, questions that we've probably wrestled with from time to time. And here are the three questions that I want to ask for those of you who are note takers and you love a system. I'll give you the system. Ready? Number one, I want to answer the question, does hell exist? Does hell exist? The second question I want to answer is, what is hell like? What's it going to be like? And then the third question I want to answer is this, who's going there? And with that third question, the obvious is going to be, of how can we avoid going there? So those are the three questions I want to answer. If you're taking notes, write the first question down. Does hell exist? In this passage, Jesus is using a parable to describe what will happen at the end of the age or the second coming when he returns and establishes his kingdom and judges the world. What's going to happen? And he uses a fishing metaphor. He said, this day, this end of the age is going to be like this. It's going to be like a man who went out and fished with his buddies and they cast a net out. And after a season of time of letting the nets down, they pulled the nets up to see what the harvest was going to be, see what they were going to catch. And as they pulled the, the net up, it was full of all kinds of fish, but they were only after a certain type of fish. And so what did they do? They called, they went through and all of the bad fish, the fish that wasn't a part of what they were after, they cast away. And then the ones that were the good fish, the ones they were after, they kept. So Jesus uses this metaphor and then he applies it in verse 49. He said, so, listen to the language. So it will be the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, notice the way in which Jesus is describing this event, this place. He uses very descriptive language, very definitive language. He says, it will be, it will come. And then he says, in that place, talking about a definitive location. And he says, these things will be. It will be a place of torment. So when you think about the language of Jesus, Jesus is leaving no room that hell does exist, that his second coming is a very real event and determining of where you stand with Jesus will be the indicator of where you will spend eternity, either with him or in this place called hell. So according to Jesus, listen, hell is very real. Now don't miss the fact that Jesus is speaking here. I mean, then this is Jesus. Jesus is the one saying these words. In fact, here's what I would say about the existence of hell. No other person in the Bible speaks more about the reality and the existence of hell than Jesus. Did you know that 13% of all that Jesus taught included information about judgment and hell? But when you sum up all that Jesus spoke about in regards to hell and the reality of judgment and eternal punishment, 
that Jesus in the Gospels teaches more on this subject than all of the writers of the Old Testament combined. In fact, over half of the parables that Jesus told included information about judgment and punishment. Jesus wants to make very clear to all of us that there is a real place, this is a real event, and there are real people who will spend eternity in this place. Now, why is this so important for me to drive this home? It's simply this, is that the reality of hell is difficult for us. I mean, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it. The truth is, most people reject it altogether. And we live in a culture where even believers are like, and I don't know that even if I believe it's true, I don't know that I want to focus on it or give it any attention. This makes us uncomfortable. Like I, I know that today, all day long, it's going to be very quiet in this room. Because this subject is heavy subject, and we don't like giving thought to it, but Jesus thought it urgent enough that next to money, it was the single most important topic, most referred to topic in all of his ministry. Because we need to press into this regardless of how we feel about it. You see, we live in a culture, we're fascinated with the afterlife, like we specifically heaven. Like if you have someone who claims that they had an out of body experience and they spent 90 minutes in heaven and man, they saw the angels and heaven is for real. And by the way, if you're reading books and information about heaven, that's outside of what you get into scripture, you're reading fiction. But we are fascinated. If you want to sell one of the best-selling books, just write on a story about how you experience the glories of the afterlife. We are fascinated with the afterlife, yet most people give no consideration to the alternative of heaven. In fact, statistics show this. Years back, there was a study, not too long ago, but in recent years, 75% of Americans believe that there is a heaven when you die that you will go to. But only 40% believe that there's a hell. And what's even more amazing than that, that of the 40% that believe that there's a hell, less than half of 1% believe that they have a possibility of going there. So very few people believe in the existence of hell, and even fewer believe that there's a chance that they could go there. Therefore, what's happening is, is that we live with this indifference as if it doesn't exist, which is why there's a lack of urgency. Many come to church week in and week out and hear the gospel preached and the, the message of Jesus proclaimed. And yet, knowing that they've never really truly done anything with it, leave as if there is no urgency and the truth be known, it's because we really don't think that this thing exists. And if it does, I'm not going there. This is why we've got to see the words of Jesus. Even though we don't like it, we've got to hear it. This is what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, there is a, no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But listen to what he says. But it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. C.S. Lewis is simply saying, that I, I wish, like I would, I would love... I would love for us to just wish this thing away. But the scriptural evidence is too weighty. In fact, Jesus' words himself make it overwhelmingly obvious that we can't do that. But this is what the enemy wants us to do. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, 
He writes about the deception of the enemy. And one of the tricks the enemy uses is deception of his non-existence. You see, the enemy doesn't care in the story. C.S. Lewis portrays uh, Satan as basically saying, well, look, look, we don't really want the worship of, of people. We don't want them to even know we exist. In fact, if they can follow us and not know that we're real, then we can win this thing. And so there's this covert operation. If they can convince us that, that, that Satan isn't real and there's no real spiritual world, then we can be self-absorbed, self-reliant, self-dependent, live all because we give no thought to that there's something more than this life out there. And I believe the same is true in regards to hell. Just think about the greatest lie that the enemy could tell humanity is this, is that there's nothing when this life is over. Or if there is something out there, it's for good people and you're a good person. And so just do your deal, live for you, be you, live like you want to live and give no thought because after all, man, this is an imaginary place. It's a land of make-believe, but Jesus says to us, no, it's not. It's a very real place with very real people. You have friends, you have family, you have loved ones. And without Jesus, this is where they will spend eternity. We cannot let the enemy deceive us into believing this is not true. Don't, don't miss this. Jesus is the one speaking. Let's just think about this for a moment. The man who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who wept with friends, who loved the unlovable, who was compassionate to the outcast, speaks about the reality of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Why would he do this if Jesus is all about love? Why would he do this? Because of love. You see, the reason Jesus gives so much emphasis of his ministry and teaching to this subject because of what 2 Peter says, Peter writes this in chapter three, verse nine. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowlessness or slowness. In other words, people were wondering, well, why hasn't Jesus come back? Is he just slow to come back? He's like, no, no, no. Don't think that he's slow. He's not slow, he's patient. Look what he says but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Why does the Lord tarry? Why is he, why, why is he giving opportunity? Because his desire is for you, humanity to recognize the glory of the gospel and the reality of hell and that he, by grace and mercy, might redeem us, that we would repent of our sin and turn to him. Jesus desires for no one to go to hell. But Jesus himself in Matthew 7 says this, most people are going there. This place is real. And Jesus says most people, Matthew 7, Jesus uses a story. He kind of says there's two roads. One is narrow and bumpy and hard, and dirty and dusty. I mean, it's just a difficult road. And few people want to be on that road. But the destination is life. Then there's this road that's easy, that's smooth, comfortable. Everybody wants to be on that road, and that road leads to destruction. So not only, according to Jesus, is hell real, most people right now are heading toward there. This is a sobering reality that we need to see some of you this morning, by the grace of God, by the patience that Peter talked about, you are in this room today because God in his grace and mercy is giving you an opportunity because the truth is your trajectory of life is toward this terrible place that we'll describe in a moment. 
But by God's grace and mercy and patience, he has brought you today so that you might be sobered in the reality of this and see the urgency and the beauty of Jesus and respond by faith to him. Here's the second question. So does hell exist? According to Jesus, absolutely yes. So the second question is this, what is hell like? What is hell like? Church, listen, what I'm about to do the next few minutes, I do not take lightly. Because even just this week as I've written what I'm about to describe to you, what the scripture says about hell, I have to do so with the reality and understanding. Not only do I have people who right now in my life are alive, who are headed to this place I'm going to describe, I have friends and family who are there now. And so I don't do this for sensationalism or even with a sense of callousness. I do so with a heaviness. Knowing the full weight of what we find in scripture about this terrible, terrible place called hell. I want to start in verse 49 again where Jesus begins to describe this. Look what he says in verse 49. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, listen to, this, listen to the description, into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus gives a description here of just how terrible hell is going to be. In fact, Jesus, through the gospel, gives a very clear, detailed description of what hell is going to be like much of, which comes, much of which comes in forms of parables or metaphors. Now, why is this important? I want you to see something and consider something. See, Jesus loved to teach in parables, parables or metaphors, where Jesus used common everyday life situations and would communicate spiritual truths in ways in which we could understand. He would compare and he would contrast or he would use mental images of something that we understand in the physical to help us get a picture of something in the spiritual. Jesus did this his entire ministry. But one of the things I think that's interesting that we cannot miss, when Jesus uses metaphors or parables, one of the things we need to know is that he uses these earthly things to show us greater spiritual things. So whatever it is he is describing in a parable or metaphor, the reality of that thing is much greater than the parable of the metaphor itself. Let me give you an illustration. In, Matthew, or in, in uh, Luke chapter 15, there's the story of the prodigal son. The story of a kid who, who received his inheritance before his father was dead in, in a way of saying, uh, I want you to die, dad, and give me the money. And he takes the money and he goes to a faraway land and he squanders it. And Jesus is telling this parable and he would have sucked the audience in. Like, how dare this kid do this? And now he's wasting it. Now he's living like the pagans. He's abandoned all the traditions and the practices of his father. And then he describes how this boy comes to his senses and says, what am I doing here? I'm wasting my life and I need to go home and, and see my father. Of course, everybody in the audience would have thought, there's no way this father's ever going to receive a son who's done this. Then Jesus turns the story in his head. He says, when his son was uh, coming a long way out, he was rehearsing his I'm sorry speech. And it says that the father ran to him and hugged him and embraced him and restored him and gave him a prominent position in the house and fully embracing him as his son once again. Everybody hearing that story would have had their minds blown. What a great story. But the spiritual reality that that parable is telling is even greater. How much greater is it then that we, though we were rebellious against God and we turned our back on him and that we disgraced, and I don't know what's happening here. Man, that could have happened later on. It would have been more awesome. <laughs> you missed your cue. 
How much more incredible is it that the God of love and mercy would embrace us? So think about this. That story is awesome. But the reality of what that story is pointing to is even more awesome. It's a greater reality. Every time Jesus uses a parable or metaphor, he's pointing to something even greater than the parable or the metaphor. And the same is true in regards to hell. Jesus gives very descriptive language and comparisons and metaphors describing what this place is going to be like. So regardless of what words Jesus uses or parables he tells or, or metaphors he, he incorporates into describing this place, know that the reality of this place is even greater and more severe and more terrifying than the description themselves. So how does Jesus describe this place? Jesus describes hell as an unquenchable fire as complete and utter darkness, as eternal torment, a place where the worm doesn't die, where weeping and gnashing of teeth happens for all eternity. And it's even worse than that. One of the most vivid pictures that Jesus ever gave of hell was when he referred to hell. Most often the word he uses was Gehenna. Gehenna was a place that Jesus was referring to, describing it, describing hell with, that was a real location outside the city of Jerusalem. There was a valley where years before God's people had worshiped false gods and erected pagan uh, altars and made sacrifices. And because of that, that place was considered a curse by the God's people. And so they made it into a dump. All of the the trash and the waste and the, the human waste of Jerusalem was taken out to this valley where it was dumped. Even bodies of animals and, and, and pets and even the bodies of criminals who were not worthy of a regular burial, they were taken to this place. And this place was a, was a constant burning. They would torch the trash and the bodies and the human waste. And day and night, this was a place of, of burning, of foul stench, a place where you could see the maggots and the decaying of body. It was a place where the smoke continued to bellow. And Jesus is using this. If you want to know what hell's like, just go to Gehenna. And this is what it's going to be like for all eternity for those without me. Thinking about the severity of hell, I'm reminded of the words of Charles Spurgeon preaching on this very subject, giving a description of this terrible place. He says this, he says, beloved, these are such weighty things that while I dwell upon them, I feel more inclined to sit down and weep than to stand and speak. Hell is an awful place. Other places in the Bible, we see this description of hell. Second Thessalonians chapter one, Paul describes, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is the second coming, the last days, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glories of his might. 
Revelation 14, John writes this, verse 10. He also will drink from the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment, listen to this, goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Listen to the description that John gives, that the torment and the smoke, and the, it happens forever and ever. And he says, day and night, in other words, this is eternity that a trillion years from now and a trillion years after that and a trillion years after that, torment, suffering, pain forever. And it says day and night. Why is that significant? Because there's not even a second of relief. It's not like you get to clock out at night and, and get some reprieve from it. And the next day it starts, it's constant over and over and over. This is why when Jesus is describing this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he talks about the rich man being in this place of torment. And here's what he said. I just got one request. Could you just take a drop of water and give it to me? Why? Because it's so terrible that just for a second, just a single drop of water might give momentary relief. And according to John, there is no relief. forever. John goes on in chapter 20. He says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into, listen to the description, the lake fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophets were, and they were tormented day and night forever. Listen to me. We have got to erase the characters, caricatures from our mind of what we think hell is going to be like. Despite popular opinion and how we water this down, hell is not going to be a party with you and your friends and your buddies. Hell is going to be the loneliest place in existence. Like you, we can't imagine the loneliness and despair. Hell is not going to be a place where Satan will reign and he'll be the Lord of hell. Satan is not the Lord of hell. Jesus is the Lord of hell. Satan will be tormented forever. And along with him, everyone who did not trust in Jesus, he says, they will be tormented day and night forever. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it dead. Uh, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Listen to this. It's described as a lake, a sea, an ocean of fire where there is torment and suffering day and night forever. This is an awful place. Christopher Morgan summarizes it like this. He says, those in hell suffer intense and excruciating pain. The pain is likely both emotional, spiritual, and physical. Hell is a fate worse than being drowned in the sea. It is worse than any earthly suffering, even being maimed. The suffering never ends. The wicked will be burned with unquenchable fire. Those in hell will be thrown into the fiery furnace and will uh, experience unimaginable sorrow, regret, remorse, and pain. The fire produces the pain described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now just think about this. Forever and ever, there's a consciousness. There is an awareness 
not just of the pain and the physical, but the emotional separation from everything in existence. And there's regret for the fact that we chose the lie over the truth of who Jesus is. And forever and ever, we live in this constant state of sorrow and pain and regret and remorse to the point of which forever it is just weeping and gnashing of teeth. The intensity of the suffering seems to be according to the wickedness of the person's behavior. Hell is utterly fearful and dreadful. The punishment is depicted as coming misery, eating flesh with fire, the day of slaughter. Those in the hell will feel the full force of God's fury and wrath. They will be tormented with fire. This suffering is best understood as endless sense of smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. The suffering is constant because it is said that in hell we have no rest day or night and we'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell is a terrible place. An awful place. And some of your friends and relatives, children, are going there unless Jesus intervenes. You have neighbors that are going to this place. According to studies, 19 million Texans are right now going there. Urgency. Urgency. Some of you in this room, you're going there because you've never done anything with Jesus. Urgency. This place is real and it is terrible. And this is why if we've never trusted Jesus, it is an urgent matter. And if we have trusted Jesus, it is still an urgent matter because many more are going there. So here's the final question. Who's going there? Who's going there and how do we not go there? So the answer to this question, I want to get you to help me for a moment. Just look up at me for a moment. The answer, how I'm going to answer this question is going to really address um, one of the greatest misconceptions about God and humanity, I think, that our culture has. And here's what I mean. I know many people struggle with the idea of hell. Like, like they struggle with it. Culture struggles with it. Most Christians struggle with it. According to studies, many Christians don't believe there is a hell because it's such a hard thing to, to, to understand and to, to grasp. Um, because here's what we think. How could a loving God create such a place? And why would a loving God ever send people to such a place? And listen, that's a legitimate question. And, and, the, and the problem is, is that this is the question that humanity has asked decade after decade, generation after generation. But Christians historically have done a very bad job of answering this question. And I would just say to you, the answer to this question comes down to fundamentally really two truths. The first is the nature of man 
And the second is the nature of God. The nature of man and the nature of God. Let me start with the way that Jesus answers this. Who's going to hell? Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate, listen to this, the evil from the righteous. Now it's critical that we see this. He will separate the evil from the righteous. So according to Jesus, there's only two categories of people. There are those who are evil, or we could say unrighteous, and there are those who are righteous. So listen to me. The categories aren't good, bad, religious, irreligious, despite how crazy election season comes, Republicans or Democrats, moral or immoral, those are not the categories that are determining factor of whether or not someone spends eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Jesus says there's two categories. Those who are evil, those who are unrighteous, and then those who are righteous. So let me just help clarify something. Listen, heaven is not for good people and hell is not for bad people because this is the deception of the enemy. Many of us live with a lack of urgency because we believe good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And I think I'm relatively a good person. And then when we start talking about the lack of goodness in your life, you can find seven or eight friends that are a little worse than you and compare yourself and say, but compared to them, I'm a pretty decent person. Therefore, I think I would qualify in the good category. And because good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, I think I'm good. Hell will be full of good people and religious people and moral people. Heaven is not for good people, according to Jesus. Heaven is for righteous people. Hell is not for bad people. Hell is for unrighteous people. And this gets to the root of the nature of man. The Bible says very clearly here that we are not good people. We are sinners. Like this is one of the issues of our, our cultures. I believe that, that, that our culture somehow, despite watching the news, says humanity is just innately good. Like we, when you look at, at, at like the, the philosophy of the world, regardless of how crazy and chaotic things get, we really think that we're just fundamentally good people. There's a few bad people out there, but we're getting better as a culture and society, but we're not. Like none of us are good people. Like we all lie. We've stolen stuff. We've cheated. Walked in lust. Had hatred or ill will toward other people. Come on, let's, let's just confess. Is that not us? So, so think about this. You know what that means for us? The Bible says, because that is true, that we are unrighteous. We are sinners. So immediately, because we acknowledge this, this puts every single one of us in this room outside of Jesus in the category of evil and unrighteous. That's who we are fundamentally. This is our innate condition. We are sinful people. So look up here and hear me say this. God does not send good people to hell because according to the scripture, there's no such thing as a good person other than Jesus. That's our nature. That's who we are. So then the question is, then why, if God is love, then why can't God just overlook our sin? So yes, okay, I'm not good. 
and I do sin and I, maybe I do deserve some sort of consequences, but why can't God, if he's so loving, why can't he just overlook our sin? And the answer is because of his nature. You see, we, we are sinners by nature and because of that, it puts us on the outside of a relationship with God because of his nature. Two things about God's nature. One, he is holy and two, he is just. Holy just means that he is perfect in every way, that he is set apart, altogether different. He is the epitome of perfection. He is righteous. And because he is holy, and because he is righteous, and because he is perfect, he cannot and will not be in relationship with anything or anyone that is unrighteous. If God were to enter into a relationship with anyone who was unrighteous, it would put his righteousness in question. In fact, God is holy and his holiness demands that he is also just. So here's what God has to do because of his holiness and because he is just, he can't overlook sin. He must justly hold sinners accountable because we've violated his Holiness. Now, I want you to think about this. Put your thinking cap on with me for a moment. See if this makes sense. God is infinitely and eternal holy. Amen? Sin is a violation of his eternal holiness. And because he is just, the just punishment of those who would violate the eternal holiness of God is eternal punishment in a place called hell. Why? The punishment must fit the crime. If the violation is we're violating that which is eternal, then the appropriate consequence should be that which is what? Eternal. And let's just lay the cards on the table. And I'll just say it emphatically, regardless of what kind of mind games you may want to play in the room or watching in your living room at home, listen, I'll just make a promise to you, regardless of how you justify the goodness in you saying, well, I don't deserve that. There's a day coming where you're going to stand before the judge. And on that day, you won't make a case for yourself. Not that you couldn't. It's that you, you wouldn't even try because it's going to be so obvious on that day that there is no case for you. Which is one of the great deceptions of the enemy to convince you that you're Okay. You say, but I'm, 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 I got a good heart. No, no, no. Here's what the Bible says about your heart. Your heart is wicked and so is mine. It's deceitful. And no one, according to scripture, can trust your heart. See right now, if your heart is telling you you're a good person, your heart is trying to deceive you in this moment. But all said and done, you're not going to have a case for yourself. In fact, let me just read to you what's it going to look like on that day. Verse number 10, Revelation 20, verse 10. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, listen to this, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. The holiness and the terror and the majesty and the glory of God is so great that even the sky and the earth wants to flee his presence. And then it says, but there's no place for them to go. Why? Because he's too vast and he's too glorious. And then I saw the dead, great and small. In other words, kings and peasants standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened. So there's going to be two books that we see, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what he had done, what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, don't miss this. He says, on the day of judgment, and every single one of us in this room, now listen, this is not fairy tale, this is not Harry Potter, this is not fantasy, this is true, and this is real. Every single one of us in this room, along with every single person in the history of humanity, from the origin in the Garden of Eden till the last day when Jesus comes, every single person will stand at this place described here, and we will be judged by King Jesus. And on that day, there'll be two ways by which we are judged. There are two books. There are two books. The first is the book of records. It's a ledger. And in these books are recorded every sin we've ever committed, every deed, every thought, every impulse, every vain word, every ill will, every act of deception. There is nothing that we've ever done that will not stand against us on that day. And we, without Jesus, will be judged according to what's written in that book. That's why on that day, there will be no making a case, but I was, or I did, or I thought. No, no, no. On that day, not a single person will try to make an appeal. Apart from Jesus, we will be judged by this book, and there is no defense for it. And he says, and the result of those judged by that book will be cast out into the lake of fire, this place that I have just described to you in detail. The unrighteous, the evil that Jesus refers to in Matthew 13 will be held accountable on that day to that ledger, that book. That book doesn't lie. But there's a second book and it looks a lot different. The second book is called the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And in it are recorded the names of the righteous. Those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life will be forever in heaven with Jesus. Never, ever for a second to experience the terror of hell. Jesus says this, the unrighteous, the first book, torment, the second book, life, heaven, forever. So the question, listen, I've got it, we got to ask this question. The question is, then how in the world, if you said none of us are righteous, That means all of us are in the first book. And that is true. How in the world does our name get in the second book? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. You see, there's a third 
part of God's character and nature. He is just, he is holy, but he is love. He doesn't just possess love, he is love. And in his love, here's what he did. He sent Jesus to live among us and the holiness of God was embodied in a person. Jesus, the righteous, he lived and he fulfilled. He is not in the first book because he had no sin in him, not even deceit on his lips. And he lived the life you and I couldn't live. And Jesus on the cross, he died. He shed his blood, the full, rate, uh, the full weight of the wrath of God, of eternal hell, listen to this, was rested upon Jesus on a cross and he died in our place. And he resurrected from the grave, defeating death, defeating hell, defeating the grave so that by faith in him, responding to his love, we might become righteous. You see, here is how it happens. When you by faith trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the first book, the record of all of your sin, there is something that gets stamped on every page and covers every sin. And it is written in the crimson blood of Jesus Christ. And it says paid in full. And then the second book is opened and your name is written in the ink of the blood of Jesus. And forever, you will not be judged by the first book. You will be judged by the second book because in your place, Jesus was judged by the first book. You see, God is love. Hell is a terrible place with the backdrop of eternity, torment, rightfully deserved by sinners who are wicked and evil and unrighteous. We see the glory of the grace of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read you some verses of scripture here. Verses that many of you, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're gonna be familiar with, but with this backdrop, I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor. I'm gonna ask you just to close your eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to help you hear these words in light of what we talked about with fresh ears. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever whoever means whatever is written in that first book it doesn't matter whoever no matter what you've done how good you think you are or bad you think you are whoever would believe in him should not perish, spend eternity in this terrible place, but have everlasting life. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us when we were still in the first book. He died in our place. And listen to verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Because of his love, we don't have to fear hell because the wrath of God has been removed from us. 
Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Eternal death, the lake of fire, death, the eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth, death. We deserve it. We, we've earned it. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 5:21, for our sake, God made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we enter into heaven. The righteous receive the eternity of heaven. The unrighteous receive eternity in hell. And we are in Jesus made righteous so that we have everything we need. And I love this because of our nature. We do not have what we need, which is righteousness, but because of God's nature, he gives us what we need, which is righteousness. This is urgent. There are some of you in the room this morning. There are some of you watching online right now. And the truth be known, you have played games with Jesus. And I want to say to you in the reality of the moment, if you are without Christ, you are going to hell. You will spend eternity in this place. And I want this to be a sobering reality for you this morning. That you're gonna lose the game, the moral game, the behavior game, the religious game. You're going to lose the game. But the beauty and the glory of grace of Jesus says to you, but I can give you victory and I can provide a way for you to experience eternity with me. And in light of the beauty of the gospel, would you today turn from your sin and trust Jesus? It's an urgent matter. Today, God has caused many of you to be here today as an extension of his grace and mercy and you will respond to it one way or the other either by receiving or rejecting. There is no middle ground. So right now, if you don't know Christ, I'm gonna encourage you to do something with no one looking around, every head bowed, just simply pray. You say, I, I need Christ. Just say, God, I am a sinner. Just in your own words, just God, I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. I know that you died and you resurrected. And you are my only hope. I want to serve you. I want to spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, no one looking around. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Just slip your hand up where you are. You say, today is the day. This is an urgent matter. Thank you. Keep your hand up, please. Just kind of raise it up. You can make eye contact so I can make sure I see it. Thank you. Thank you. 
You say, I'm done playing games. I need Jesus. And I just prayed to receive him. For those of you, the ones that I can see with your hands, those are not, I'm gonna encourage you to do something. There are, there are exits right here middle of this auditorium, no one looking around. I'm gonna ask you right now, listen, this is gonna take courage and boldness and I'm asking you, listen, this is serious, this is an urgent matter and I wanna make sure that you understand and then we can put some material in your hands to help you in this new journey. So if you raise your hands with me, I'm asking you right now, just with no one looking around, get up and walk toward this exit to my right where you see some people congregating and then to my left where you see some people congregating. Right now, if you raise your hand, just step up. If someone's with you, just tap and say, I just need to talk to someone. Man, they're gonna rejoice with you. It's gonna take boldness and courage, but right now I'm asking you, leave your seat. There's a couple of you that raised your hand and I'm encouraging you right now. Just go take the hand of someone and pray with them. Praise Jesus. If you raise your hand, I'm gonna encourage you right now, join others who have come and who are coming. For those of you who are watching online, if you prayed this prayer, I'm gonna encourage you right this second to do something. Text the letters NBBC to number 313131, like right now. It's gonna give you a link, fill it out, send it in. Just say, I prayed to receive Jesus today. And we will have someone call you uh, before the day is over to pray with you and encourage you. If you're serious about this, let someone know. For those of you who lifted your hands but haven't yet moved in a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing just for a brief moment. And I'm gonna encourage you um, to go take the hand of someone and let them pray with you and encourage you. For those of you who are in this room who know Christ, let me get you to raise your hand if you know someone who doesn't know Jesus. If you, you say, I know people who don't know Jesus. Just lift your hand. There are people in my life that I work with, in my neighborhood, family members that don't know Christ. Here's the thing. Last year, we asked you the question, who's your one? Here's the second question. Where's your one? What are you doing about it? In light of what we talked about, the people that you are thinking of right now, this is where they're destined. And God has placed you in their life to share the good news of Jesus with them. Let this be an urgent matter. I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor. Let's stand to our feet. I'm gonna pray over you. We're gonna sing for a moment and then get out of here. And as we sing, my challenge to you is to pray, to seek the face of the Lord, to make this an urgent matter, to plead with God on behalf of that friend, that family member, that person that you raised your hand for and ask God to use you in their life. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and mercy. And God, may we live with urgency. May we not take this for granted. This is real. And I pray against any lie of the enemy that wants to rip this from our mind to think that there's something more important in life. There is nothing more important than eternity. So God, may we respond today by faith in these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.